So we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have indeed set us a firm foundation on your excellent word. You are the God who has spoken, and we pray that you would help us to hear what you have said here in this passage and to apply it to our lives by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you have a seat? Uh, well, what would you do if, um, if you were contacted by the king and asked to take on responsibility for a significant portion of his investments for a period of time? I, I guess these days it would have to be part of the Duchy of Cornwall or something, wouldn't it? Uh, or is that one passed on to, to, to Prince William now? I, I, I get confused by uh, how these royal things work, to be honest. Um, but what would you say if, um, if Charles III were to contact you? Would you do all that you could to serve him well? Or would you do the bare minimum? Uh, that you could get away with? Or would you just tell him where he could stuff his money and you don't even want him to be king and don't want anything to do with him? Probably get away with it these days, wouldn't you? And we find all of these kinds of responses to a king in the story that Jesus told here in this passage in the next part of Luke chapter 19. Um, we're on page 1053. Um, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he has been heading for more than half of Luke's gospel. He is determined to go there. He's in Jericho, down in the Jordan Valley, and he's nearly there. If you just glance ahead in the next bit, the next few verses after what we heard this morning, he will reach the city. Now, people are starting to wonder if he's going to be crowned king in some kind of dramatic event. Look at verse 11. The people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And so Jesus tells them a story. He tells them a parable, a story to help them understand. It's a, a parable about a nobleman who leaves his people uh, to go away for some time and be appointed king and then to return to rule. And it's a provocative story because it asks the people, uh, will you be found a faithful servant of this king when he comes back? Of course, it's, um, it's a veiled, but not really very veiled, story about Jesus himself and the reactions and responses he gets from different people. It's a parable about the kingdom of God and Jesus' arrival as king. For people like us, living 2,000 years plus later on, it speaks to us about being ready for Jesus' return. And it's about what these servants do with the money they're given. Um, the money itself is not the, the main point of the story. These minas or miners, and I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that word. Um, but it's a provocative reading, isn't it, um, for us to engage with. And in the story, what Jesus particularly does is engage with some of the reasons, or maybe excuses, that people have for not serving him as king. Um, the first one of those is the danger of what happens when we can't actually see the king with our eyes? In, in verses 11 to 13. Uh, and in particular, that note that the man goes off to a distant country there in verse 12. As I said, the people in verse 11 might have been expecting some of the kind of pomp and ceremony we can look forward to on May the 6th. Maybe you're looking forward to that, to the coronation of the king. Um, or maybe it leaves you slightly cold. I don't know. Uh, but... The people in Jerusalem need to understand that it's not going to be quite like that. This king is going to die. Jesus himself, isn't he? And then he's going to disappear for a while. What kind of king is that? Well, so 
Jesus tells them a story about another coronation, verse 12. This nobleman who goes to a distant country to be crowned and then to come back. Well, maybe that sounds a bit strange to us. You know, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Charles going off to, I don't know where, America, France, India, to be crowned and then to come back to to rule this country. It's something to do with, um, I guess, living in a constitutional monarchy and having uh, been a country with an empire that stops us from thinking in those kinds of ways. Uh, Weird to us, the people listening to Jesus in in Jericho would have known exactly what he was talking about, though. Because what what this story is about is something which had happened just a couple of decades previously. There was a guy called Herod Archelaus, and he had headed off to Rome to see if the emperor would crown him and then send him back as king. So when the people heard Jesus telling this story, they would have thought straight away, oh, this is like that. And, of course, the reason he went off to Rome was because in those days, that's where the real power was. There might have been kings and rulers in different parts of the empire, but it was the emperor who was the one who was really in charge. Uh, But, of course, to do that, to head off over the sea somewhere for a period of time on what would have been a long journey, you can't just hop on an easy jet from Tel Aviv to Rome as you would do these days, uh, comes with risks, doesn't it? Absences do funny things. We say, don't we, sometimes, out of sight out of mind. What might happen while he is no longer present? Uh, And people start to forget about him. Uh, Now Jesus is telling this parable about himself as the Messiah, as God's King. And he's saying to the people, listen, don't be put off when you can't see me anymore. When it looks like I've gone away and you start to wonder if I'm really going to come back. Don't be misled by my apparent absence. As verse 13 shows us there is still work to do. This nobleman puts 10 of his servants in charge of his affairs, giving them these 10 minas, uh, each one worth a few thousand pounds in today's money. So significant amount, not an enormous amount, but uh, not just a tenner either. And so the first warning to us here from Jesus, the first challenge to those who are listening to him is this. When you can't see me while I'm away, don't let my absence stop you from serving my kingdom the kingdom of God. And of course, that's a warning which speaks to us very much today as his disciples. It's part of being a disciple, isn't it, is to be someone who is waiting. That's one of the, one of the things which disciples of Jesus find themselves, ourselves doing. We're waiting for his promised return. At the moment, we cannot see him. His kingdom is assured. He died, he rose, he ascended to the throne of heaven. He is with us by his Holy Spirit. But one day, every eye will see him as king. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But in the meantime, he has left us with work to be done, with the resources he has given us. Don't be complacent. Don't forget him just because you can't see him. That's the first excuse for not serving the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We can't see the king with our eyes. The second one, which is even more serious, which comes in verse 14, is when people don't want Jesus to be king. If you just glance down at that verse. Um, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. Um, Again, if we return to the, the ancient story of this real king, kind of puppet king, Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, it seems that he was not a popular man. And this really happened when he went off 
to Rome to seek his crown. There was this delegation which went off. I don't know if they were trying to get there before him um, or cut him off at the pass or something. But they, these people went to the lengths themselves of traveling to Rome to say, please do not put this man over us as king. And it seems they had at least partial success. Um, he got some power, but not perhaps all the power that he was seeking. Well, a similar plea is made in Jesus' story again, isn't it? About this story about the kingdom of God, about this king and his servants. Um, because they hated him, they sent a delegation to say, we don't want this man to be king. Again, some people have always said this kind of thing about Jesus. Um, people who were there in Israel said it in the first century, and people have said it ever since. Um, it's a, a serious thing to say, though. It's one thing not to want Archelaus to be your king, or even Charles III. It's quite another thing to reject Jesus' authority to be, authority to be in charge if he really is God's chosen king. But nothing new. And, of course, when he gets to Jerusalem in next week's reading, we, there will be plenty of people there who don't want him to be king, and they're going to kill him to get rid of him. Um, and there still are plenty of people today who don't want Jesus to be king. Of course, they can't literally kill him anymore. Uh, he has conquered death. But it's still possible to seek to put yourself on the throne of your life in place of Jesus. Um, some people, and you will know people like this, do this openly and proclaim themselves uh, maybe to be atheists or at the very least not to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as, as the Savior, as the King. Um, sadly, there are others sometimes um, within the church. I mean, Jesus spoke about the, the wheat and the weeds, didn't he? Are those who may claim allegiance to him, but still refuse to accept what he says about how we should live in the kingdom of God. And none of us, I think, should feel complacent about this. This isn't here to catch us out, but it's worth asking the question, are there things that Jesus has said as king that I'm just not having because I don't like them? What are the parts of Jesus' word which we find uncomfortable or difficult? Um, am I here in church for his kingdom or for my own sense of fulfillment? Do I want to be in charge of my life or am I willing to let him be in charge? On whose terms is it? Um, the people of Jerusalem, as verse 14 suggests, will take matters into their own hands. Um, Jesus will go to the cross because they don't want him to be king. But of course, that can't change the reality that he is God's king. Rejecting Jesus as king is like saying you don't believe in the law of gravity. Fine. Go and walk off a cliff then if you want to. Let's see if the law of gravity is real or not. Verse 15 says he was made king. That's the reality of who Jesus is. He rules. He reigns. We can live as though he doesn't if we choose to. But that's going to be a disaster if it's living against the truth. We can be tempted to stop serving Jesus because we can't see him and also because we don't want him to be king anyway. And then the third reason or excuse that is given uh, by people who don't want Jesus to be king is, is when they don't really know what he is like anyway. And we see this particularly a little bit further down in this third servant who talks about the king as a hard man who takes what he doesn't sow and reaps what is not his. Uh, the king in the story puts his wealth, these ten miners, in the care of his ten servants, and then once he has been crowned, he returns to me in verse 15, 
and he gathers them all together. It's the day of reckoning. It's, um, it's the annual shareholders meeting, if you like. It's the time to report back on what you've been doing in the period while he's been away. And the first two servants have proved trustworthy, haven't they? One of them has turned out a tenfold profit. The second one's turned out a fivefold profit. I mean, we'd be delighted by that kind of return on our investment, wouldn't we? I certainly would. Um, look, imagine you're running a business. Um, maybe some of you have that experience yourselves. What will you do with an employee who turns out to be skilled and trustworthy and committed? I mean, that's the kind of employee you want, isn't it? Um, if you've got business sense, you're going to give them some more responsibility. You're going to want to keep them. They're just the sort of people you're going to want to be looking after your affairs. You'd think, here is someone I can trust. Now, we don't know how these two first servants have made their profits, whether it's through washing cars or through clever investments in the markets. And that's not the point. Whatever it is, they've got stuck in, haven't they? And so to the first servant, verse 17, the king says, Well done, my good servant. Because you've been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten cities. And to the second in verse 19, you take charge of five cities. It's not so much that they're being rewarded, I don't think. It's more that they've shown themselves to be just the sort of person this king would want to have running his cities. It makes sense for him to continue to trust them. They've shown him that they can. Meanwhile, of course, one of the other servants has just done nothing. He's just wrapped the, the miner in a cloth and hidden it away because, he says, he was afraid. So what do we learn about this third servant here? I reckon there's two things. The first one is that he's a fool. What a ridiculous thing to do, quite, quite apart from whether he's right or wrong in what he says about this king. Um, what kind of logic is this? Surely, if you were afraid of your boss, the last thing you would do is the thing which is most going to provoke him and annoy him and get him on your back. I mean, anyone who's been an employee surely understands that. It's not a very sensible course of action. He's not thinking very clearly. But there's another thing about him as well, uh, and this is perhaps the more important one, secondly. It's that this man doesn't know what the king is like at all, does he? He says, I know he's a hard man who takes what he doesn't put in and reaps where he hasn't sown. But where's the evidence for that in this passage? There isn't any at all, actually, is there? In fact, it's, I would say it's quite the opposite. Whose money is it that the, that the king has given to these servants to invest? He's not trying to make a profit off their money, is he? It's his own money that he's putting in and entrusting to others. Uh, some people can fail to serve a king they can't see because they can't see him or because they don't like him. But it seems that this third servant fails to serve the king because he doesn't know him. He doesn't realize what he's like. He's misjudged him, and the consequences are tragic. Now, I take it that most of us who are here in church this morning uh, are, are here because we have come to know and experience the Lord Jesus as King for ourselves. We have learned something of what he is like. We've come to appreciate that he is a king who is good and faithful and worth serving. Um, if, if that is not you, if for any reason you've been maybe coming along to St. Luke's for years but have perhaps never experienced that for yourself, then the thing I always would encourage people to do above any other is to take the time to get to know Jesus. And we mustn't fail to respond to him because we don't know him. 
Um, he's the king, Jesus, who is on his way to die and to rise. Um, today, he's the king who will return to judge and to reign, even as we wait. That's the reality. And the rest of the parable says something about this to us. In verses 23 to 26, the king there takes the third servant at his own words. This man was not trustworthy with the little he'd been given, was he? So can we really expect the king to trust him with even more? It's not strange or unfair, is it? It's just good business sense. Who are you going to put in charge of valuable and important responsibilities? Is it going to be the servant with a track record of being hardworking and successful? Or is it going to be the one who can't even be bothered? I mean, it's obvious. It's going to be the first one, isn't it, who's given further responsibilities. That's what verse 26 is all about. It's not that the third servant is somehow not a servant anymore. Right now, though, he's just not someone you're going to give additional responsibilities to. That's verse 26. Then, of course, there's verse 27, isn't there? Uh, and it's an uncomfortable verse with which Jesus ends his story with these words from the king. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, they sound shocking, those words to us, don't they? I think partly because of the culture in which we live, the fact that you know we live in a, a parliamentary democracy, don't we? We're used to having a political system where there are things like opposition parties. And that's not just okay, that's right and normal and good. Um, I want to say, first of all, I doubt this was as shocking to the people listening to Jesus as it is for us today, because you know, what, the, what the king in, in, in the story, in that final verse, does is just what kings did in the ancient world. If you crossed them, it's not Ray Charles III, is it? Um, if you oppose them, woe betide you. Of course, there are still many rulers like that in different parts of the world today. Might not be good, but it isn't abnormal. Um, what is Jesus' point here? Just to be clear, first of all, this is not about the servant who wrapped up the miner in a cloth and didn't do anything with it. No, that's verse 26. He wasn't a good servant, and he's been left with no cities to look after now. He's certainly not been promoted, but he's still a servant. No, this is about that other group of people. Remember those guys from back in verse 14, the ones who headed off um, to the far country to try and stop this king being crowned, the ones who, Jesus says, hated the king. He said, we don't want him as our king. The rejecters, if you like. These enemies of mine is what the king in the story now calls them in verse 27. And they're the ones who did not want me to be king over them. And again, there's kind of a double meaning in what Jesus is saying. There is a contemporary warning here. He's warning the people of Judea, of Jerusalem, that the time will come when, a, when there will be a ruler from Rome who will crush them. And it happened just a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But he's also got a wider point to make, as with the rest of his story. Because this parable in the end is about the return of Jesus to rule in his kingdom. And it's a warning not to make excuses and particularly not to oppose him. And his warning is blunt again, isn't it? If you reject the king, that is your choice. But once again, it's like rejecting the law of gravity. Whether you accept it or not, you are still subject to it. Whether you worship Jesus or whether you reject him, he's still the king. And it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an all-powerful king whose rule you are steadfastly rejecting. Now, I don't know if you like this verse. I suspect few of us do. It's a verse which sounds quite harsh, doesn't it? 
Why does Jesus say something like this? Maybe you're thinking, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I'm used to thinking about. We need to remember what is about to happen to Jesus here. We are just one verse away from his entry to Jerusalem and the beginning of the last week of his life. Of course, he's not a harsh or vindictive ruler, is he? He's the king who's going to Jerusalem. Why? To give up his own life so that his enemies, people like you and me, might be saved from death. That's the kind of king he is. So why is he saying these things so bluntly here, which shock us? He's doing it because time is short. Jesus knows that he'll be dead in just over a week, and right to the end of his ministry, he is still trying to warn people. And at this point, there's no point in him you know, pussyfooting around. He makes the warnings blunt because he doesn't want people to miss out on being part of his kingdom. He does it because he cares. He says, don't be like this. Don't be like the one who rejected the king, especially as the king that you're in danger of rejecting is the one who loves you and will die for you. It's too important because to reject the rule of the God who is the creator and sustainer of everything, for whatever reason, whether it's because we don't know him or we don't like him or we've just forgotten about him, Um, It's like a diver wanting to cut off their own oxygen supply while they're underwater. Just foolish. So as Christian disciples, most of us, I take it this morning, do not want to reject Jesus as king, even though we know we often get things wrong. Um, There's a wider point in this story for us here too. Um, Jesus has invested in us too, as his people, um, like his servants in the parable. And we're, we're having a kind of giving Sunday this week. Now, most of you, I imagine, would have received a letter from me this uh, week about it. Um, it's worth asking ourselves, what will we do with all the resources, the things which God has graciously given to us? How will we serve our neighbours, uh, our community, those around us, our church, our brothers and sisters, with the resources he's given us? That's a collective question for us as a church together. Uh, It's why why we have a PCC to make decisions on behalf of the whole church family. It's also an individual question that is good for each of us to answer. Um, We haven't been given 10 minors, 10 minas, but whatever we have, uh, friends, funds, abilities, time, homes, it all belongs to Jesus, doesn't it? Um, That verse from... Uh, King Solomon in the Bible that we use in services sometimes. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours. All things come from you and of your own do we give you. Uh, Which includes our money, but everything else besides. All the things Jesus has given us. Uh, Right now, King Jesus is not visible for a while. But he will return. So in the meantime, let's make the most of what we have been given for his glory and for his kingdom so that when he comes we won't be left making excuses for forgetting about him or not knowing him or not trusting him Um, but will be received as those who have been faithful. Let's pray. Thank you Lord Jesus that you are the king who came to die, 
to die for those you love. Thank you that you are the king who defeated death and now sits at the right hand of your father, our father in heaven. Thank you that one day you will return uh, to judge and to reign and to receive us as your servants. Help us to be those who, who warn those who don't know you, who hold out that invitation to new life and to forgiveness. And help us to be those who use wisely and well all that you have so generously given us. For we ask it in your name. Amen.